New Life Friday night. It's so good to be together. Can we just come on in? Let's prepare our hearts for worship. We just believe that when the people of God gather, that this becomes a place of encounter. For us to encounter God, to hear from Him, to sense His presence. So maybe we could just all lift our hands in this room and come prepared. God, we want to hear from you. We want to exalt you in this place. Thank you, God. Goodness, let us become. More. 
hearts alive tonight like never before so that we can praise you like never before and we be found fully alive in your glory tonight wake us up lord to sing your praise open our eyes to see your glory have your way have your way family let's sing this together we want give you pure exaltation let's sing this together let's pray open the heavens receive what is yours Jesus receive what is yours with all you have now. And worthy are you, God. Worthy is your name. Worthy of our praise. We worship you. And here we stand in awe. You deserve it all. Jesus evermore. We worship you.
Creation. 
as we come to give to the Lord of our tithes and offerings, I invite you, if you're part of this family, to join us in giving. I'm going to do something a little bit different here tonight than I usually do. I want to invite the New Life Friday Night staff team to come up. So Jordan, Matthew, Vincent, Alex, come on up on the stage. Can you give it up for the New Life Friday Night team? We've got Abby here and 
Where's Vincent? Is he coming? He's taking pictures. He's coming. Here he comes. Okay. So, yes, we invite you to give of your financial resources, but that's just a part of the invitation. We want to invite you to give your lives within this place. And I wanted you to see our team because these people pray for you. They would bleed for you. They will show up in the hospital for you. I, they walk, I walk in the building and they're walking around this room saying, come Holy Spirit, take care of this congregation. Take care of the people who need jobs in our congregation. Heal the sick in our congregation. Let the little babies rise up and worship you. They love you. And, and, and this team has given their lives to serve you and to pray for you. And so I wanted you to see them. Today, tomorrow is Jordan's 33rd birthday. <laughs> Give it up for this lady. Jillian, come on. We got these for you. Give it up for Jordan, sweet woman of God. Alex, come on up here. So yesterday we hired this guy. His name is Alex Thomas. I've known Alex for a long time. He grew up around Colorado Springs, went to Liberty High School, was a track star, went to GCU on track scholarship, ran there four years, was a stud, could fly. Like springs, he can fly. And then went, he graduated, got a full ride scholarship to Denver Seminary for three years of Masters of Divinity. He just finished that. So give it up for that. Excellent, excellent man. So he's a hard worker. He's smart as they come, but he loves Jesus. And he's growing in the grace of God. You're going to watch him become a fantastic preacher. You're going to watch him demonstrate the pastor that he is. And so when you see him around, I want you to welcome him to the family, receive him. I've been trying to hire him for five years and I finally wore him out. So welcome Alex tonight to the team. So I wanted you to see what our little family looks like here that is committed to praying for you and serving you and laying down their lives so that you are well. So yes, we're going to give of our tithes and offerings, but that's just getting started. We're going to give of our lives. And we're going to honor one another. We're going to bless one another. We're going to visit each other in the hospital and feed each other and take care of each other. And we're going to help the elderly go into their rest with the peace of God. And we're going to champion the children to rise up and to take the story from us. So I invite you not just to give of your tithes and offerings. I invite you to give your life here in this place and watch over the decades the kingdom of God come and the will of God be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So let's pray as we give. Lord. Thank you for Alex, for bringing him to us. Thank you for Jordan, for her birthday tomorrow. We celebrate them. Thank you for this congregation. And thank you for a people committed to you and to one another. And we pray, Lord, as we give, that we would be found faithful over the decades. We pray that we would stay with the story of Jesus. We pray that there would be no needy ones among us because we live like the early church and we give of our resources and we give of our lives. Lord, let your kingdom come, we pray. We give you these gifts. We pray that you'd make them a blessing in our city and around the world. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, let's continue to worship as we give. Let's sing our Father. And our Father in heaven, the light of salvation. The breath of 
church, would you take your seats for just a minute? We're going to dedicate a beautiful little baby boy to the Lord. So would you welcome this family as they come up to the stage? That wasn't rhetorical. Could you welcome them to, as they come to the stage? Yes. The Roddicks, come on up. And all the extended family, come on up as we're getting ready. Some of you are wondering what we're doing here. We believe that life is a gift from God and that children are an incredible blessing. And so when God gives us children, we want to dedicate them back to the Lord and say, Lord, they're yours, have your way. And this couple is special. When Cameron moved to town, how many years ago? Probably a dozen. 12 years ago, we met right away and started in a small group together and became friends and then watched these two fall in love and they got married out at our place and, and I got to stand with them on their wedding day and then here they are with their first little boy and the house that they're raising him in is the house that we owned, our first house in Colorado Springs where we raised Lillian and Wilson. So you are in a great place, my man. This is Elias David Roddick and can you tell us uh, how old he is? Almost eight months. Eight months. Hi. And look at this family here. Got grandparents from both sides. You, you are rich to have these people here with you tonight. And little man, you are rich. Yeah, that's a good smile. <laughs> so I'm going to anoint him with oil. Can I have this, the Bible, Jordan? Marissa. I'm giving you this Bible, mom and dad, because you're not just dedicating him to the Lord, you're dedicating yourselves to nurture and to train him up in the way that he should go, to read him the scriptures, to pray, to create a home, and you've already done it, where the glory of God is thick. And so take those scriptures and steep this boy in the story of Jesus. And so tonight I anoint you, little man. Yeah, it's gonna be cold. With oil, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Parents, could you press in and lay your hands on the family? Lord, church, would you stretch out your hands to Elias David? We thank you for this gift, Lord. Thank you for this gift. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Lord, we receive him into this family, this church family, this family of faith. And we thank you for awesome parents. We thank you that these two have committed their lives to Jesus and that they've followed you with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And thank you, Lord, that you've given them this little man of God. And Lord, we speak life over Elias David. We rebuke the devil in Jesus' name. You have no authority over this one. He's been marked by the Spirit of God. He's been anointed with oil. This boy will follow Jesus all the days of his life. And we thank you from his earliest memories, even as he sleeps at night, he'd be like the little boy Samuel, and he'd say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. That he'd love you with everything, that he'd have good friends. Scripture says that good friends are super important. He who walks with wise men will be wise. A companion of fools will be destroyed. And so we rebuke fools in Jesus' name. We drive them away. We thank you for surrounding him with great friends and great aunties and uncles and grandparents and extended family in the faith that this young man would always be surrounded by the people of God. We thank you, Lord, that he's gonna know his identity. 
in a world that is struggling, in a world that doesn't know up from down, we thank you that this boy will be sturdy on his feet. He'll have equilibrium in the spirit. He'll know this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. We thank you that Elias David will be confident and secure in the man of God you made him to be all the days of his life. We pray that the joy of the Lord would be his strength. I sense there's a, a sweet joy on this boy. Let the joy of the Lord carry him forward. Let the blessing of God carry him forward. Let the peace of God carry him forward. Let the favor of God rest on him. Psalm 512 says, the favor of the Lord our God will surround you as like a shield. We thank you for that. We thank you that he'll be vital and strong and healthy all the days of his life. Lord, for mom and dad, that they would have wisdom at every turn. At every critical juncture that they would have a prophetic word to know how to direct their son. The prophet said, when the spirit is poured out in the last days, I'll turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents. And so we thank you that this home is marked by unity. And we rebuke strife and drive it out in Jesus name. Lord, we speak destiny and blessing and life and peace and joy and abundance over this man of God, Elias David. And we pray, Lord, bless him and his family and keep them and make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. Lord, lift your countenance upon them, we pray, and grant them your shalom in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Can you give it up one more time for this beautiful family? Church, would you stand back up with me one more time? I gave you a break. Get back up on those feet if you can. Now, take two minutes, cross the aisle, hug a neck, shake a hand, be kind to each other in Jesus' name, then we'll open the Bible. One, two, three, be nice.
Okay, okay, grab your seats, my friends. Thank you for coming to church tonight. Tonight we have a really special treat having a guest with us. Uh, I'll tell you a bit of a story. Last year we hosted the 24-7 prayer conference right here. Some of you came to that. The Holy Spirit was just, it was thick in the room and we had three days of worship and prayer. And, and I'd heard about this gal, Bethany Allen, and then Bethany Allen came to the conference and she spoke. And it was a Thursday that she spoke and, and I was sitting right there on the front row on the aisle and she finished and she walked off and she came down to the front row uh, to kind of stand there afterwards. And I said, when do you fly out? And I said, could you stay and preach that tomorrow right here at New Life Friday night? And she's like, oh my gosh, I would love to, but I have to fly home. And I said, well, let's get the calendar out and have you back because you have to come preach that here at New Life Friday night. Bethany is a a seminary trained gal, loves Jesus. She's from Florida, but she lives in Portland, Oregon. And she's been out there at now 12, 13, 14 years. And she's working as really one of the executive pastors and leaders at Bridgetown Church. Some of you have heard of Bridgetown, pastored by John Mark Comer before, and now Tyler Staten, who's been here to speak. Well, Bethany is helping run that church. She's one of their elders there. She's leading their entire staff. And she's a preacher's preacher. She's a great writer. Tonight, we have the gift of having Bethany Allen here. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to lean in. I want you to pray as she comes up. I want you to to celebrate. I want you to say, come Holy Spirit and pull the word of God out of her. She came ready to preach, but now let's join our faith together and let the word of God race through this place. Amen. Would you join me tonight in welcoming the Bethany Allen. I'm so glad to be here. Wow. I wish Daniel could come to our church and tell everybody all that. That would be so good. I'm so honored to get to be with you today. Man, this is a good little town, city. What are we, what is this? City. It is. It feels very filled with Chick-fil-A, which we don't have. So this is the Lord's city. And I bless you with that. Um, Man, I had no idea the gift I was going to get to find in Daniel and Lisa, their family, the whole thing. It, it, um, I just want to say this because you don't get to do it very often. This is just one service, so I can just say whatever and then I can leave and Daniel can never invite me back again. Um, you have an extraordinary, you have extraordinary pastors. Um, and... And people who come in, we're supposed to say that because it's polite and the work is hard. Um, but I am not being polite. I'm, I'm slightly judgmental. That exists in me. As a full confession, we're family now. Um, and I just have to say, I've just been so blown away um, by the hospitality and love and the depth of character that your pastors hold. Um, It's extraordinary and it has made this holy ground for me. As I've anticipated coming, God has raised my faith because of the leadership you have here. He's called me to greater holiness because of the leadership you have here. So when I got invited, I was like, oh crap, I'm gonna have to fast. Uh, All right, Lord. I don't know if we're allowed to say crap from the big screen. I apologize. Uh, Anyway, I'm from the South, so there it is, the dirty, dirty. I just want to say thank you for having me. I may not be back again, so (laughs) this may be it. Thank you uh, for for having me. It is a deep, 
deep honor at a spiritual level as well, and I'm so humbled to be in your house. Um, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me one more time, mostly so I can get my mind right, um, but also so that I can get my heart right, and I have contended for tonight, and I just wanna welcome God's presence to hide me so that he can come and minister to you. So Spirit of God, we just say to you again, as we've done in worship and other times here in prayer, we're just here for you. That Jesus, if you don't come, if your spirit doesn't move, if you don't hide all that is broken in me and exalt all that is wonderful about you, this is just a waste of time. Um, So Spirit of God, we turn our attention to you with our frail and broken humanity. We still turn our attention to you and say, come and fall on us. Come and move among us. Let your word divide soul and spirit. We love you, Jesus. You're the aim of our affection. So come now and center us on you as we receive your words to us. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I was 14 years old, uh, at least as my, as my memory can recollect. I was 14, 14 years old the first time I remember witnessing the heart and fidelity that can live in a marriage covenant. I wouldn't have been able to put words to it then because I was 14. Uh, But I will never forget the impact of seeing a love like I saw. It had been just over a month since my mom told my dad that she was leaving him after 25 years of marriage. A godly marriage. um, One that for many years centered around ministry and the church and faithfulness to the kingdom. And we sat uh, on the floor of our living room, my brother, my sister, my dad and I, And with this uninterrupted faith, my dad led us to pray for my mom. And this wasn't the first night we had done so because I'm fairly certain that running to Jesus was all my dad knew to do when all of this went down in our family. And the truth is, it was all we could do. But for some reason, this night for me stood out. It has stuck to me in a way that I still cannot shake. And it's funny to me how life is made up of a million seemingly insignificant moments and yet they can often make the greatest impact on us. This one night, this one particular night, my adolescent soul somehow caught a glimpse of something that I now know changed me. That changed not only how I saw my dad, but how I would forever understand love and its power. That night as my dad prayed, I saw this love on display that could somehow allow one to not only persevere in the worst of circumstances, but somehow also see and hold to a reality that was yet to exist. That night on the floor of our living room, I saw a fire and a ruthless fidelity and hope in my dad as he prayed very simple prayers, born out of union, riddled with tons of history and trust and layers of intimacy. And somehow, amidst our devastation and his confusion, and if I'm honest, humiliation, he was, in the truest sense, and in the way that a 14-year-old can understand it, a groom, somehow still bound to the well-being of his bride unwavering in his faithfulness to her, even as he sat in the realities of her faithlessness. And I did not know. I 
couldn't have known all the ways that the image from that night would shape my life or even my understanding of myself. But I do know that witnessing a love like that will force even a teenage soul to recognize that this kind of love and the hunger it produces in a soul is both ancient and universal. In his book, From Here to Eternity, Frank Viola says that we were all born into a romance, one that he says exists at the heart of the universe. This cosmic idea of romance when it comes to the human souls, of a persisting love, it's not a new one. In fact, every human story begins with this truth, and we see that alive and well from ancient Greek to Eastern Asian mythology. We see that the story of created beings transcends religion or worldview and bears witness to life meant to be lived in union with someone or something else. From philosophers like Plato and psychiatrists like Carl Jung, each have spoken to the very real ache within the human soul to both give love and to know love. And while this cosmic reality is sometimes compelling, sometimes, for most, it has pointed us to the deeper questions found at the heart of any good romance, whether we've said them or not. And those questions are, who am I in this story? And what does happily ever after look like? It's fair to say that on almost every page of the scriptures, we see an unbroken thread of the theology of this cosmic ache. In fact, we, as followers of Jesus, we hold to, I believe, the most stunning picture for this transcendent romance, and that is of a bride and a groom. And it all starts for us, at least, on page one of the Bible. Now, I grew up Baptist. I feel like I'm coming home a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Not here, but here in Colorado Springs. That said, I love the Bible, and so I'm going to nerd out a little bit. Can you handle that? We're just going to nerd for a minute together. We're going to pull on this thread that we see in the scriptures, and we're going to revisit what I suspect most of us are familiar with when it comes to this narrative. But I want to pull on this thread because I believe the scriptures are alive and active. They're able to speak to us and pull out of us the things that we are meant to see and know and understand and perceive. And it's my hope that as we lean back into the text, as we lean back into the scriptures, that somehow we'd be able to see ourselves again, maybe in a new way in this romance. That we would see and find ourselves somewhere in the great story of the soul and wonder together at what it means to know a love like this. So, to start, are you ready? Deep breath. I feel like you're all biblically Deep. So I feel like maybe your breath needs to be more shallow. In other places, I got to tell you, it's a big inhale, you know? Uh, I'm from, anyway, solid West Coast. So we're deep, we're trying to do deep breathing there. Um, we're going to do this in five movements. We're going to do it through creation, the prophets, Jesus, the church, and a wedding. So after we look at these, uh, then we'll talk about what it means for us. So you ready to begin movement one? If you're taking notes, this is it. I only have a few of these, so here we go. Creation. In Genesis chapter one, we find God creating. And it's here that he, in so many ways, is holding up a picture of what life is meant to be. It's this narrative, it's a a witness to not only who he is, but who we are in light of him and what it means to live life with him. And in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, we find these words. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
You familiar? Yeah. Now, if we jump ahead from there, just a few verses to the next chapter, we read again this story, but in a bit more detail. And and we read about this significant creation moment. In chapter two, verse seven, we read this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, these first two chapters of the human story are the same story, you probably know this, but told from two different angles. They are a snapshot. And, And though they seem pretty simple, especially upon first reading, in both we see God setting apart man and woman, and marking them with his image, with his breath, with his life. And we also see his craftsmanship and the uniqueness of their union, of this both and reality of their creation. There is a symmetry of God's full image on the earth through union happening here. And it's from these verses that we both see God's profound explosion of his tangible felt experience on the earth. And with that, A picture, a picture of the invisible purpose and destiny of each created human being. But there's more. And you're like, what? That just blew my mind. I know. There's more. Okay, I thought that would land a little bit better. It didn't. Hidden in chapter 2, specifically in verses 19 and 20, we also find what to me has often felt like an insignificant detail in the midst of this great crescendo of the creation narrative. It's here, kind of nestled between these two stories, that Adam is given a seemingly insignificant task of naming the animals in the garden. And it's in this moment, this bizarrely small vocational moment, that we find God letting Adam feel his own deep longing letting him feel the nuance of his created being and and to experience within that longing a desire for a partner, an actual counterpart, what we would call a bride. In this ache, this cosmic ache, we find ourselves zooming in on as representing something deep within his design, something deep within our design. You see, God lets Adam feel his own divine longing, his image-bearing calling out, and he also lets Adam search for that in every created being on the earth without actually finding it. Until, at the end of his search, in verse 18 of chapter 2, we read that God says it's not good for the man to be alone, that he will make a suitable helper for him. Now, suitable helper is better translated opposite him or a strength equal to him. So here, in the middle of God's picture of life as it was meant to be, in the midst of Eden, we see this finale of God bringing two together for the purpose of imaging one. We see similarity and we see difference. We see a bride and a groom. And this image is meant to point us not only to the relational union with others we were called to on this earth, and I'm not just speaking about marriage, but to the greater picture of the perfect eternal union we were all designed for. This image is telling us a story about who we are, but also about how we are to live, how we are to know the gift and the power of our purpose. This, though seemingly small picture, is an invitation for each of us to know and experience what we all want most, life to the full, a wedding To put it simply, it starts the human story and it sets into motion for all created beings the familiar ache and longing for a love that brings fulfillment and not just to the heart, but to the soul. Now, from there, as the human story unfolds, so we see that desire do the same. 
In the Old Testament, we're introduced to a few infamous voices who post sin entering into the garden or the human story. They use their voices to call humanity back to the vision we find in Genesis chapter one. They are called the prophets. And this is our second movement. The people that filled the earth, the the fruit of the union of Adam and Eve had now wandered far from Eden and its vision for life centered around this cosmic romance. And these prophets in the Old Testament were sent like town criers, sent to tell God's people uh, the story they were meant to live in, to represent God's heart, his cry, his deepest desires for them. And God begins to express his desires through the prophets most regularly by using this marriage metaphor that we find in Genesis chapter one, God the groom and the people his bride. Now this provocative imagery, while strong and sometimes violent, uncomfortably so, expresses the depth of union he desires for us. But it also points to the measures that God the groom would go to sacrifice and show his love. Here's just a few examples. In Jeremiah chapter two, we find clear imagery of God's people as a formerly loving bride who have now become a prostitute, chasing after other men who use and abuse her. In Hosea, probably the most infamous of the prophetic imagery, we find a prophet directed to remain faithful to his wife who was repeatedly unfaithful to him. He goes after her time and time again, displaying his unwavering love and commitment to their union, but also to who she might become. And this was meant to be a picture of what God is like in the face of great infidelity, of our unfaithfulness in loving him. And finally, in Isaiah, after showing the unfaithfulness of God's people dozens of times in dozens of chapters, Isaiah ends with this beautiful reaffirmation of God's faithful and enduring groom kind of love for his people. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, he says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. These cries, the stories of the prophets and the imagery cast from their lives reflected the often complex realities of the great romance that is alive in every human soul. But more than that, for the people of God, in very real terms, it defines the characters in the story. Yahweh God, the groom, and his people, the bride. In no uncertain terms, he laid out for them and for us our part in the cosmic romance. And he spoke to the ache that every human person on earth carries. And just like a faithful groom would, he didn't stop when they didn't play their part. In fact, God, moving beyond infidelity and burning with holy passion, he doesn't stop in his pursuit After 400 years, we see the heart of the groom on display as he shows up like, dare I say, Mr. Darcy in the rain (laughs) and declares, I love you most ardently (sighs) through flesh and blood. This is our third movement, Jesus. Jesus enters the human story. And love puts on flesh. And he, in the language of the New Testament, becomes the new Adam. Now, I want you to think about that, the new Adam. In light of what we just revisited, this new Adam means that he would, like the first Adam, carry an ache in his body to be unioned with another, to his bride, incomplete without her, unable to rest until there was from him and from his love another formed, his counterpart, Jesus becomes human that he might obtain the joy and the passion that burned in his chest for us. 
In the New Testament, we find statements of this reality. John the Baptist, the cousin and friend of Jesus, he refers to him as a groom in John chapter three. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says, and it is now complete. Jesus also calls himself the bridegroom when he was criticized by the Pharisees for not enforcing the level of fasting that they practiced among his own disciples, saying in Matthew chapter nine, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Jesus boldly stated that his presence among them was like a groom coming for a bride. A groom who was happy to be with them, but also aware and pointing to the reality that his purpose as a groom would be to ensure that they would never be separated from one another. And that, we know as the story goes, that would require a love so fierce that it would mean conquering the very thing that was conquering his bride, even at the cost of his own life. Sacrificial love. Love, born out of his desire for another at all costs, meant giving a new image of what it would mean to be his bride. And that leads us to our fourth movement, the church. After Jesus' death, his conquering of sin, we begin to see a new family emerge. Just like that of a bridegroom, from this union of God and his people comes new life. And the recipient of an unconditional love like this will inevitably be transformed by that love in extraordinary ways. And we see that reality erupting in what we now call the church. All throughout the New Testament, we find the language given in Genesis begin to fill the pages of the new story of God's people. The metaphor of a bride and a groom, it wasn't just a nod back to the old days. The language used by the authors and the leaders of the early church Church, yes, it beckons us back to our original story, but it does so because there's no other language to use when describing the power and the depth of a union so profound. The mystery of this love, Paul says, can be summed up in the mystery we find between husband and wife. In the book of Ephesians chapter five, we hear him echo these words. He says, there's a love, a union between a bride and a groom, and it can be summed up this way. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The church, the bride, pursued and pure because of the love of her groom, now, just as it is in marriage, lives awake to the desire that comes from both our design but also our destiny to again be reunited, one day fully satisfied without interruption to our groom. The truth about who we are in the story, it's undeniable. But the question of the happily ever after, it still remains. We are living in a story, in a romance, that despite what it feels like in our day-to-day -day grind, we can know that we are living in a union but that union is partially known and yet fully alive within us. And despite the tension that that often leaves us with, our groom did not leave us without a guarantee of the ending. And that leads us to our final movement, a wedding. Are you okay? All right. Just as the opening pages of the scriptures tell us, we are a people meant for perfect union. And just as there was a wedding at the beginning, so there will be one at the end. In Revelation chapter 19, verse seven, we read, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Again, in chapter 21, I saw a, whole, a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. The story ends. The story, by the way, is going to end. This great cosmic story for the people of God, it ends with a wedding, a celebration of the bride finally with the groom. And it's from this truth that we, as God's people, as his bride, it's us, it's we who have to set our trajectory for love, for life as we know it now in the kingdom. The ending is actually where we begin. It's where we find confidence to live into who it is, not only that we are, but who it is that we will be. What we see in this very long scriptural exegesis, well done, is that we exist in a narrative so loud and so compelling that I think you would have to willfully reject it to not actually accept it. We are the bride. We exist now in a romance that cannot be denied. And just as it is with every other love story, it actually has the power to change the fabric of our lives and our future. And hear me when I say it's supposed to. I'll never forget uh, the feeling of that wedding dress on my seven-year-old frame. It was the 90s, and we were living large. There used to be, at least in Florida, please don't send me an email, uh, these dress-up places you could rent out for birthday parties. Anyone? Yeah, and so you'd spend hours pretending with your best girls about what life would inevitably look like one day. Again, probably a Florida thing, and I'll, I'll own that. Anyway, dress-up was a thing, and when I saw the wedding dress that was one of our options, you better believe I was the first one in line. I was living prophetically, yeah? That was supposed to be funny as well. Don't feel sad. I feel like you felt sad for me, and that's okay. Some of you should if you're single and over a certain age. Okay. As I finished uh, putting the veil on, because I got to wear a veil as well, and my seven-year-old body completely swallowed up by the grown-up dress. I distinctly remember thinking, is this what a bride feels like? And my mind ran wild in that moment, imagining the tall, dark, and handsome groom that would probably look like a mix of Prince Eric from The Little Mermaid and this cute guy from my Sunday school class named Aaron Ivy. And... Uh, and I genuinely wondered what it would be like to walk down the aisle and marry him. That dress that swallowed me that day, it did not make me a bride. But it did give me vision for what it one day might be like. This story, this narrative we find in the scriptures, it's what scholars call an inaugurated eschatology, which simply means an already and not yet reality that's at play. And it is meant to give us vision, not only for who we are, but for what we will one day know in full. And while there is, as we've read tonight, an established and certain identity given to those of us who call ourselves God's people, we are his bride, an identity that centers around the reality of our part in this romance. If you're breathing, you also know that there's a very real component to that that is a not yet reality. So the question we have to ask is, what do we do with the in-between? And what would a bride do 
as she waited to know fully the joy of being a bride? And what about our identity is meant to inform how we live now in light of what's to come? And what does romance look like this side of the wedding? As a teenager, and again, I want to remind you, I grew up strongly Baptist. And we did a, summer, a study one summer on the book of Revelation. I was in middle school. Uh, so that probably tells you everything you need to know about my early spiritual life. Anyway, um, I am definitely not sure what I got from that Bible study. But one thing pierced me that summer. And it was this phrase from Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. In that verse, John writes, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The love you had at first. Puppy love, I think, is what we as Americans have coined it. That love that comes to you so early and clearly in the beginning of a relationship, the way you know the movement of the other and anticipate the words that will fall from their lips. The beginning of the story where a new identity emerges as it wraps itself in another in the form of a relationship and a new intimacy begins and brings to life the power and the ache of love itself. The love you had at first. This language points to something that's meant not only to drive us towards relational intimacy, but to remind us of who we are in light of the one we love. And my best guess, as a very young pastor, (laughs) is that maybe this is where we start. With considering and embracing the truth of our identity, but also the fullness of the gift that the intimacy brings. Identity and intimacy. This is where we find life at the center of these great biblical metaphors that have flooded the page of the scriptures that we've heard and perceived tonight. And the the truth is how we understand identity and intimacy and how we live into them, that changes everything. That shapes and changes our reality in a way that nothing else can. So let's just do a bit of a case study. Identity, our identity as a bride. I just wanna help unpack this for us. Bride. This is a term distinguished from wife. It is an identity that centers not on a formal contract, but on being the center of someone's affection and love. Bride, it is an identity that is intrinsically connected and tethered to her counterpart, the groom. There is not one without the other. Bride, it is an anticipatory term. In every definition of it, it connects to something that is about to happen or has just happened, not something that has been. A bride is the object of someone's love, and it's that love that animates her truest identity, how she shows up not only to her groom, but to the world. How would living as though this were true actually change how you showed up in the world? How would it change how we lived if we actually believed these realities, being the object of one's love, as any of us who have been in love knows, it changes not only how we see ourselves, but how we actually move through the world. Living as though you are loved, it's one of the greatest forces on earth, and it doesn't come all at once. It actually usually requires a bit of waiting. You see, at her core, one of the bride's greatest and most defining acts is waiting, Waiting is part of the narrative of the story found within this romance, and it's important 
because it's connected to who we become. You see, waiting has the power to either define us or to diminish us. Now, that's just a bit on identity. Let me just speak to the intimacy side of things for a second. The intimacy that comes with being a bride is equally as distinct, I think, as the identity given to us as bride. If the identity of of a bride is being loved, then the intimacy that comes with being a bride is love aimed at someone. It's marked and activated by union, by the pursuit, the promise, and the patience of a groom. It is the regular exchange of knowing and being known, of becoming one. And at its core is hope, the anticipation of coming good based on the character or the nature of another. When my mom left, we had no idea how long it would take to see her return. And just like in any relationship, I saw my dad fluctuate between the ache of waiting, filled with longing and desire and hope, to seasons of depression and grief and boredom. You see, fidelity, especially over a long period of time, is boring. Some of you married people are like, amen. It's okay, you can just speak it out. We're free here, we're family. In the space of waiting, of the mundane, so many of even the best romances become indifferent towards the gift that it is. Fidelity is the space in between. And it's from this place that while often dismissed in the mundane, we find the birthplace of a potential of life, the life that we hope to live and the love that we hope will fuel us in that life. There is significance to our fidelity, and I just feel like I need to say that again. Your faithfulness in this community, the the faithfulness many of you have stewarded through absorbing much, there is significance and power in your fidelity. There is significance in the day in, day out union with God and with this community because where we direct our desire will ultimately shape the relationship we have and how we see ourselves in it. You see, in in waiting, in the spaces that demand we hold to our identity comes the great tension of what we do with the intimacy that is given as a byproduct of who we are. Waiting for most of us will either build our appetite or it will dull our senses. It will either deepen our love or it will inflate our fragility. It will either reveal the nature of our deepest hope or it will illuminate our greatest fears. Waiting for the church, for us, for this community. It's at the core of a bride's identity, but how we wait and what we do with it, where we set our gaze and where we place our hope and how we fan it into flame. It will determine the kind of intimacy and goodness we know as we wait. A few minutes ago, I asked a few questions, things like what do we do with the in-between and the now and the not yet reality? And how do we live in light of what is yet to come? And what does romance look like this side of a wedding? These questions Each of them holding not just an abstract or observable curiosity, but a confronting one if we were actually willing to ask them. If we're actually willing to consider them. And I just have to say, because God's been all over me, we have to. We have to ask, what do we do with this? And then we, church, have to give an answer. 
Because each of us tonight, each of us, while maybe holding a desire, and, and I know that's true, to experience this kind of love that we hear preached about week in and week out, to be in worship and crying out and pouring out to God all that he's worthy of, to have these experiences and encounters with the love of God, all of us, we, we desire to know that at least at some level, if we're God's children, but the truth is we also know the reality of the mundane, of the fidelity of this marriage that we find ourselves in. We do. We know the wrestle of wanting a wild romance only to discover, like in all our other relationships, we often better know how to manage or mitigate or minimize the ache in the name of not having time or not having something good enough to aim at in the name of the comfort of what has been or what's working more than we know how to actually foster what we actually want. And I would love to tell you I'm up here righteous. I cannot remove myself from this equation because after 20 years of ministry, don't do that math, and 30 years of loving Jesus, don't do that math, I got saved at zero. Uh, I recognize that my desire, though honest and real, and it is honest and real, it isn't and it never will be enough. You see, desire, and hear me when I say this, it demands discipline if it's ever going to be a realized joy. Desire, it demands discipline if it's ever going to be a realized joy. And if I, and if we, we want to live as we were meant to, if we want to live in the gift of our identity, even if we know enough tonight to say, I just wanna live in the reality that I am a bride, fully loved with someone's love aimed at me 24 seven, then we're gonna have to have a container, a pathway to intimacy, we most deeply and innately desire. And the container actually has to be big enough to hold the wildness of that love it possesses. And I feel like I just need to say, God's love is wild. It should feel wild. It is like a burning, raging fire that doesn't end. So the container has to be big enough to hold that reality. And also it has to be strong enough to hold the ache and the mundanity of love. That's not lost on God. The container has to be able to aim our hope and our desire towards the only one who is actually worthy of it. The container is and will be essential. Sometimes in the church, we do this math where we're like, we want the presence of God, but we will not do the discipline to get there to it. In the invitation here is we lean into our identity as God says very clearly in the scriptures, this is who you are. But for you to know the fullness of the gift that I have for you, it's gonna require something of you just like marriage. Just like any relationship, it's so gosh dang annoying. (laughs) But it's necessary. And I'm just gonna offer you my brilliant Bridgetown, John, Mark, Homer, Bess. Let me tell you what that container is. Are you ready? Get your notepad out. Prayer. Prayer. I wanna be clear though, the prayer I'm talking about isn't just the sweet good morning and good night or a quick hello or good night kind of conversation with God. The kind of prayer I'm talking about is the kind that involves late night conversations and delirious laughing sessions. It is the kind, thank you. That's what it should sound like. It is the kind of prayer that is slow and that marks especially tender moments like we find upon waking next to someone when language is unnecessary but so much is being said. It is the kind of prayer that includes details and desires and dreams, those things we carry day in and day out with the one that we love. It is the kind of prayer that is costly, that demands time and presence 
and faithfulness. And it's the kind of prayer that through exchange after exchange and showing up after showing up through sacrifice and wrestle through the mundanity and fidelity in the day in, day out showing up that strips us of everything that we are not and calls forth everything that we are. It is that kind of prayer that we're to go after if we actually want to encounter and remember who it is that we are. Prayer. Mother Teresa once said, enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. Prayer is the language, it is the vehicle of the greatest expression of love. It is how we know the groom. It is the bridge that connects us most deeply with the heart of the bride and it is the only thing day in and day out that will aim both our hearts and our souls towards the one who will both now and one day fulfill and empower and illuminate and reveal the fullness of love we were meant to know and that we ache to know. It's the simple prayer. It is the vehicle that we use to set our eyes to live with the face of our groom in view. Because can I just tell, tell you something real personal? I'm so single. Uh, I think the theological term is single is a Pringle. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I imagine what it would be like just to know the face of my groom and what that would spur me on to as I pray and contend for my family, as I pray and contend for my children with the face of your groom in view, reality begins to shift. Faith begins to rise. And we remember who we are and how we are to live. It is a place of dependence and it is a place of strength. It is the place where we realize we can and will do anything for love. The invitation tonight is not just to remember who you are and what you've been called to, but if I haven't beat that drum, let me beat it now. (laughs) The burden I come into your community with tonight, the thing I've been contending for is that you would know the gift of the relationship God has given you, intimacy now. I feel like the Spirit kept saying to me, it's now. It's not for later, the spirit, there's more here now for each of you. There's more understanding of who you are and the great romance and the great wildness of the kingdom on offer for your community. And and I'm no prophet nor daughter of a prophet, but I can tell you that this is the thing that burns in the heart of God for you because I've been, remember, fasting, praying, contending, because I'm scared to come here. Uh, And and so I did, and I just sense this is what God has for your community. So I wanna bless you to know there's more. There's more, and it's so easy, and it's so good. Now, I have to end because I've probably gone 28,000 minutes over, but here we go. Matthew chapter 25, read it in your quiet time this week, hoping you're having one. Anyway, Matthew 25, that was encouragement from a spiritual formation pastor. In Matthew 25, just before Jesus' betrayal, Jesus begins to tell the parables, these, these beautiful parables, pointing the hearts of his listeners, in particular to his disciples, to their new and coming reality of waiting, of this in-between, of this now and not yet reality. And he says, you're about to enter into it through telling these stories. And Jesus starts his particular story um, out by talking about 10 virgins, a group of women in the story meant to ready themselves for the arrival of the groom. And he tells them to keep their lamps burning to be ready for the moment of the groom's arrival. And five of the virgins he tells us were ready, while the other five we read were not. 
You see, in Jewish tradition, after the proposal by the groom, the bride would not actually know the day or the hour of the actual wedding ceremony. (laughs) The groom, with some of his close friends, would at some point leave his home and go to the bride's home where they would experience various ceremonies followed by a procession through the streets after nightfall, leading them back to his home. And while that concept is unnerving to so many of us righteous women in the room, In it, we find that the imminent marriage of a bride demands something of her. Demands that she be ready. That she aim her heart towards the groom's arrival and allow that waiting to distinguish her. The difference between the five virgins is where they aimed their hearts. And so I have to ask you before I get pulled off this stage, where is your heart aimed? And how would aiming it again and again at Jesus change your reality where have you set your hope where are you cultivating an intimacy that moves you beyond the present that you can control to a place of faith my family's story didn't end as you'd imagine it was seven years before any of us would hear from my mom again but in the years that followed as I've gone back to that moment I told you about earlier a hundred times I've realized something I didn't know then My dad wasn't just a noble, faithful husband, and he was. He was so much more than that. My dad, a pastor for 40 years, through prayer and after so many years of following Jesus, knew what it meant to be the bride and knew the love and fidelity of his groom. He lived as though he knew who he was in the story, and he lived as though he knew how it all ends. He knew his identity of being the bride, and because of that, he also knew what it meant to live like a groom. We are the bride of Christ, a term that to so many of us can feel so abstract and archaic, and yet it is the identity meant to shape our lives and our destiny. At weddings, we all love to look at the face of the groom as the bride comes down the aisle, don't we? What if we live fully aware, not just of the groom's face, but of the reality that the joy on his face is because he is beholding the bride? beholding us, beholding you. Let's stand and pray. Let's respond to Jesus. The best prayer I've got, God, is Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak. Keep our hearts open. Help us to be faithful now in responding to your invitations by faith. Thank you. Can we close our eyes and just wait? feels profane to be in a hurry. Maybe Jesus wants us to feel what it's like to be waiting for the the groom to come. So Lord, teach us to wait for you. Teach us patience. Teach us endurance. 
teach us long suffering. Teach us fidelity. In a world that is so fast and so impatient, Lord, teach us to wait for you. Isaiah's words in Isaiah 40 is coming to my mind. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Really, actually, some of the way you're going to get your power back is by learning how to wait. So, Jesus, we invite you to teach us that. We want to call our communion servers to come down because we're going to practice by faith the wedding supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, the story ends at the table, at the banquet, at the feast of the wedding, and the groom and the bride together. So that's what we're going to practice by faith here in communion. So if you're new with us, we come through the room. We come and get communion elements. Go back to our seat as we worship. Hold that there, and I'll come back here in just a minute after you've all gotten your elements. And we'll practice this, receive this together. Come and worship Jesus.
as you get your communion elements ready. Team, can we go to Is He Worthy? You can switch keys. Get us to the bridge of Is He Worthy for us to vamp after this. Are we in the right key? No, we're going to switch. Okay, beautiful. I was going to say, it was God. It was God. Bethany, keep our lamps burning. I just, I just hear that. Keep our lamps burning. Keep our lamps burning. Because we have to wait. I wish I could just wave the magic wand and fix it all. We, we're going to wait and we're going to ache and we're going to cry and we're going to long because that's what the bride does. But while we wait, we have to keep our lamps burning. And so tonight I sense we're going to pray here in a minute after we receive communion and worship. We're going to pray that we would have the grace to, to remember our first love and keep our lamp burning. But Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And he knew what it was going to cost everyone. It was going to cost him his very life. Broken body, shed blood. He's going to be scourged and broken and betrayed. He knew what that was going to cost. But he also knew what it was going to cost the people at the table. And he knows what it's going to cost you and me tonight. And so there's compassion in the room from Jesus. He's not mad at you. He's not wagging the finger. He says, this is my body. And it's broken for you. And as often as you do this, remember. Remember me. Remember I'm the groom and I'm coming back again. I will not leave you. I'm coming. So tonight as you take this bread, do it by faith that that the groom is good for his word. He's going to come back and strengthen Jesus' body broken for you. You may receive. Bethany, would you come up here as we're about to receive? We're going to pray and then sing. On the same night, he took the cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood and it's given for the remission of your sins, for your faithlessness, for your infidelity, for the ways you've walked away, for the times you've quit. Jesus says, I got it. I know that's coming. This cup is here for you and I'm going to wash that away. I'm going to make you clean and drink up, drink the wine and be refreshed and be happy again. Jesus says tonight, your sins have been forgiven you. Receive his forgiveness as you drink. Now we're going to pray about returning to our first love and keeping our lamp burning. Bethany, would you stand up here with your prophetic sensitivity and just lead us in that prayer tonight? Church, would you open your hands before we sing this song to receive? Jesus, I would ask even now that there would be a holy interruption and disruption to even our paradigm for how you speak to us or how you relate to us. I just pray, Father, as I even prayed earlier this morning, that there would be an expansion of the holy imagination that we have towards you and for you. Would you pour out now, even as we're singing these words, these declarations of truths, would you begin to expand imaginations for the possibility and the realities that your spirit can bring? 
Spirit, I have just believed that you wanted to release healing in the room tonight, so I pray by the power of your Spirit, you would, as an act of love for your beloved, pour out healing, physical healing, and emotional healing, and relational healing. Jesus, we would ask for a release of the miraculous, and God, we're willing to be surprised and uncomfortable with all of that. We just welcome the reality of your presence. Father, I also pray that in that you would fan into flame greater faith and fervor for what, God, you want to do in this community, what you want to do in this city, what you want to release over this leadership. Spirit of God, would you fan into flame and do what only you can do? Because here's the deal, God, only you can. Only you can give us vision. Only you can pour out realities that we could not perceive or create ourselves. So God, I don't need some show. We just need more of your spirit to be poured out in this community and faith to rise, to believe you for more. So I just pray, Holy Spirit of God, for an outpouring of your spirit over this community. Even now, miraculously tonight, that we would receive from your table more of you, because that's what this is. It's more of Jesus, more of the Spirit, more of the Father's love. So just pour out who you are, Jesus. And we say by faith, with fear and trembling, we will receive your portion. And God, we ask that you would help us where we can't. So come, Holy Spirit, rest upon us now as we worship you. I pray, Father, you'd push back the enemy, even as we make these declarations, that he would be bound once and for all from certain minds and hearts and bodies, and that you, God, would release faith again in healing in the life of your spirit. We love you, Jesus. If you did nothing else for us, but give us the life of your spirit through your death, burial, and resurrection. That would be enough. So we worship you and you alone, King Jesus. Pour out your spirit. Reveal who you are in deeper ways, I pray. And I ask by faith now in Jesus' name.
and receive your strength this week. I pray may the Lord our God bless you and may he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift his bright smiling countenance upon you and all of your people. And may he grant you his shalom, his peace tonight in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said.
Amen. Can we give God thanks for what he's done here tonight? Real quick, real quick. I know I kept you long. I'm not sorry. Okay, real quick. Can we say thank you to Bethany Allen tonight? Our prayer team is coming forward. One other thing, we've got a military connect group right after this out in this hallway in room 160. Carson and Morgan Roberts are going to be leading that. So if you want to swing by, any of you, military connect right out that hallway. Go from here tonight in God's grace and peace. Much love.